Father, we do ask for your help this morning. We recognize um, our limited capacities just in learning and knowing and understanding the world around us. Um, but it is in your light and with your truth that we can begin to approach that. And so as we talk about the church in modern America, as we look at that in light of what your word reveals, we ask that you would help us today and that you help us not so that we grow inflated in pride, but that we be humble and chastened and that we know how to respond. Uh, help us to be uh, your faithful people. Guide us through this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we began talking about American culture and we looked at a bunch of zations, okay? I'm not even going to get back into all the words we talked about last week, psychologization. It took me 25 times practicing that word to say it for you without messing up. And we talked about the democratization of happiness and we talked about all the impacts of this with the sexualization of psychology. We're going to review some of that material today because I know it's a lot, um, but uh, we're also going to be using resources that I'm kind of pulling together uh, to help inform what we're talking about here. If you are interested, some people are like, hey, what, what books were you talking about? Uh, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is a particularly helpful book. You may want to wait for the abridged version that's about to come out. The full version is a lot. Um, and I don't find myself reading every page. So uh, you may want to wait for the abridged version. Some of the other books that I'm using today that I'm pulling from, uh, because we are outside of Chuck's depth here, um, but are books about American uh, culture and their sociological books. But Robert Bellow's Habits of the Heart, written in the late 1980s, but almost a, a prophetic style book uh, with what was coming in America. Robert Wuthnow wrote a book called After Heaven, just talking about the changes in American religion since the 1950s. Uh, and then also a sociologist named uh, Christian Smith, and he wrote a book called Souls in Transition, okay, just talking about the changing religious patterns. Um, these are not necessarily written from a Christian perspective, but they're helpful for informing us and help us to understand what's going on, okay? Now, as we get into this, last week we did talk about the psychologized self and what we need to recognize about that identity when we understand ourselves as we are defined by our own psychology is that impacts social, political, and religious aspects of life in modern America. Nothing is left untouched, okay? How you conceive of yourself has direct impacts on the way that we live and the, the way that we live together. So we can't avoid being cultural creatures. None of us can, all right? We are all stewed in a certain pot. But the one thing that you can avoid is you can avoid being an unaware, unselfconscious, and unreflective cultural creature, okay? And so one of our tasks today is just to become more conscious, to become more aware, to become more reflective about the environment around us and how it can shape us, and particularly how it's shaping the church. So this disposition impacts overall patterns of religious behavior. That's the psychologized self, all right? And it also impacts the evangelical church. We're not an exception. We're not an island out there that's been impervious to all this stuff, okay? And that is how some people uh, like to approach these matters. It's kind of the us's and the them's. I think it's more helpful as we look at this to say, hey, we're all stewed in this cultural pot. What does it mean and what's a faithful response look like? So please note, uh, as I do this today, because I will in inevitably step on some sensitivities, all right? This is not a condemnation of the vices of other churches and an exaltation of the virtues of this church, OK? 
okay? It's not an exaltation of the virtues of our particular denomination or any other particular denomination, okay? Um, I learned a phrase a few years ago that the grass is not green anywhere. Uh, it's brown everywhere. Um, and, uh, and that's been helpful for me. And so I'm not trying to look to some gilded age of the past where I think it was better. I'm not trying to look to uh, a denomination to save us. I'm not trying to say that there's an evil group of people out there. What I'm trying to do is just describe for you the phenomena that we see generally and the things we're going to talk about today, I think you'll be able to get your, your minds around. You'll be able to understand. But one of the things that you have to appreciate is that these all exist in degrees, okay, and on spectrums. And that's where it's really challenging uh, to talk about. So uh, this is a description of modern phenomena that leads to a prescription for a way of being faithful, okay? And I'm going to give you my best shot of that in this cultural context. There are other ways of doing that as well, but I'll give you just a few resources that we'll talk about at the end. Okay, so two main questions that are going to shape our time together. First is, how does the psychologized self shape modern church life, okay? Instead of using that phrase, psychologized self, today, I'm going to use the phrase individualism, all right? It's the same thing, and it's what um, uh, some social philosophers have called expressive individualism. Okay, that's where we are in America. That's the word that's been used. It's helpful. But so what is the psychologized self or what is the expressive individualist? Let me just review what we talked about last week. Now, in popular culture, it's common to hear phrases like live your truth or you be you. Okay, though something of cliches, they also reveal a set of intuitions and practices that have been imbibed from the modern project to redefine the self. Last week, we explored this in depth, explaining that the self is now understood and it's interpreted in psychological terms. And it's critical to understand that this orientation, that we have to understand that orientation to appreciate the cultural forces that are shaping the world around us. Now, traditionally, the world was assumed to have a certain order and a certain meaning that we were to discover and conform ourselves to. That is that the world was defined by an external factor, namely God. That he designed it, he created it with certain purposes and certain intentions. And if you wanted to know meaning and to know your place in the world, it meant that you had to discover that meaning and place from God himself. And that's what constituted a good life. Now, Christianity offers this traditional view, teaching that God created human beings with a certain design and for a certain purpose, that we are accountable to him, and that our flourishing as people is defined uh, by aligning ourselves with his purposes for us is the traditional view of what it meant to define yourself. However, we also noted that that traditional view has broadly collapsed in Western culture. And so the assumption that operates today, it's not necessarily conscious for most people, but the underlying assumption is that the world does not have a given order or meaning that's defined by an external source, that's defined by God, all right? So rather the world is raw material, it's just kind of something out there, that you then, as individuals, you then take that raw material and define your purpose or meaning. Okay, so rather than the definition coming from the external and from the outside, we rather take that raw material of the world and we impose our definitions on it. So we live in a world in which nothing is necessary and everything is possible. 
Nothing's necessary because there is no external law. There is no external authority, no one greater than the self defining it for us. And everything is possible because the world's just raw material. And so you impose whatever meaning you want to on it. So meaning is defined by the individual. Meaning and truth are nothing more than personal taste and preferences. And so you be you because you get to be the captain of your ship. You are the one who by your own personal taste and preferences gets to define these things. This is what it means to be authentic. This is what it means to be real. This is what it means to be free, is to be the one who is brave enough to define yourself. So there's no authority beyond our own personal psychological conviction. And this is what we could call the expressive individual, all right? Now, the impact and the significance of this for the modern church is fairly significant. We'll consider four different impacts on how people tend to approach church in light of being stewed in this cultural context. Now, let me issue one other qualification. These are not monolithic statements, and I'm not asking you to conjure up in your mind visions of other churches who you don't think do it right, all right? Now, you're inevitably going to do that, all right? Um, But this session is not about just poking fun. Um, We will cite some different things just to help you get your mind around it. Um, But these are general dispositions and susceptibilities that happen in the evangelical church because of these things. All right, and they live in different degrees. So at the center of your diagram that you have there, just put the expressive individual, okay? That's the core thing we're talking about. And then we're going to talk about these four circles, just these different dispositions and susceptibilities. Now, first, what has this created? You could say, first, a consumer orientation, right? Just a consumer orientation to church life. The expressive individual is on a personal quest for inward happiness, we said last week. That's what we want. We're on a personal psychologized quest for inward happiness. So what this creates is a certain inward focus, okay, where our happiness is defined by our personal states of feeling and emotion, all right? And so we tend to approach churches looking to that church as to what it can give us in order to assist us in that inward state of happiness. And so inevitably what happens in that type of cultural context is church becomes more about consumption than it does participation, okay? Church is something that uh, you come and consume at in order to actualize yourself and experience your personal fulfillment rather than a place that you come and participate and perhaps receive meaning and significance for your life through that participation. Now, I know that can sound fairly theoretical, but what happens is that true community is sacrificed somewhat there when we become just individuals who happen to arrive at a place in order to get something for ourselves, and then we go away, okay? Again, think of spectrums, but this is one of the major impacts of the expressive individualist is that we become more consumer-oriented. Now, we also happen to live in what is called a hyper-capitalistic economy. That plays into this philosophy as well, where we are consumer-driven, Ad campaigns are actually driven around making you feel discontent so that you need to buy the next product. Do you know the company that has perfected this? Apple. You buy one iPhone, and then before you've even bought it, and it's new, you've already been told that the next edition is coming out and how much better that new camera is going to be. 
Um, and so this is just the way that the psychology of advertising works in our culture. Uh, we live in that consumer-oriented society that feeds on discontentment and also feeds on giving you a feeling of having arrived because you have a certain product. Okay? And guys, that filters into the way people do church as well. Okay? It's just simply unavoidable. So what happens with individualists is they're prone to bring their ideal definition of the church, okay? That ideal definition of the church for most individualists is defined by their own wants and needs, okay? So their ideal definition of the church is not necessarily biblically defined, but it's defined by their own sense of what they want and what they need, and they bring that to the local church. So then when they interact with the messy reality of the church, is it ever according to their ideals? Shake your heads violently, no. <laughs> because the church is filled with sinners. And so inevitably, when people bring their ideal definitions of the church, they then are disappointed and they feel unfulfilled. Okay? And there can be extraordinary discontentment. So they're slow to consider that the path of fulfillment may come through a counterintuitive practice. That is that life is not found in being served, but life is found in serving. And of course, we know that that definition comes from Jesus. And so the consumer orientation of society actually militates against the definition that Jesus defines for the church. All right, and so we find ourselves at a tension point there. All right, that while we're disposed to come and consume, Jesus says, no, you're going to find meaning as you come and participate and serve and give yourself to something larger than yourself. All right, two competing notions there. So that's the first impact, is the consumer orientation. Now, second, due to this uh, expressive individualist, we also have affinity for imminent concerns. And by imminent, I just mean immediate concerns, things that are tangibly related to the world we live in. So the expressive individual is more impatient with church teachings that they perceive to be disconnected from their immediate concerns and from their immediate world, okay? So this manifests itself in kind of three different ways if I were trying to summarize it for you. You're gonna find some teaching that has more a political emphasis, all right? So if the idea is for something to be imminent and tangible, you'll find some churches, and this has tended to exist more in mainline churches, but also impacts the evangelical church, where you will find more emphasis on the political side of things because we want things to be tangible. We want to see the kingdom of God be visible. We want to see things like this. And so you find political impetus. Now, a second way that that manifests itself, you also see it in a therapeutic impetus, okay? Where there is a desire to bring comfort to the person and to, uh, to see things healed, but that imminent focus of God in the person's life. Third, you'll see it also in a practical uh, impetus. That is just an emphasis to help people navigate different problems of life. Now, are any of those things necessarily bad or unscriptural? No. The Bible actually addresses all three of those things, okay? But guys, what we're talking about are different degrees of emphasis and how things can get out ahead of us and get away from us. So they're not bad in themselves. The Bible has a tremendous amount to say about politics and the way that a Christian is to conduct themselves. We're going to look at that specifically next week in our Sunday school time together. And then we're actually, I didn't line it up this way, but we'll be preaching on Romans 13, okay, which deals with Christians and the political sphere. 
Now, it's also important to recognize that the Bible has powerful things to say about loving your neighbor. And your neighbor is not just who you like. (laughs) Your neighbor is all kinds of people that you're asked to live in community with and what it means to honor them. And so whenever you talk about loving your neighbor, you're involved in the political sphere. That's just the world of dealing with people, all right? That's what politics is. And so uh, we have to recognize that uh, love for neighbor, though, in the church's teaching can eclipse the conversation about love for God. Jesus does say one of those is primary, that loving God takes the primary place. And he says second and nearly like it is loving your neighbor. So you can never forget loving your neighbor. But oftentimes what happens in the imminent concerns where people are focused more on this worldly thing because of their concern for the psychologized self or acting out of their psychologized self, is that they focus in unhelpful ways on that horizontal level and forsake the vertical, okay? That's one of the things that you'll find happening. Now, also, uh, Scripture has a whole lot to say about therapeutic things. One of the things that we deeply believe is that when we come into communion with God, when we're brought back into a reconciled relationship with Him, that things are going to be fixed and healed in our lives. So they're not going to be perfectly so right now, but we do experience therapeutic comfort from God, from the truth of his promises. We receive that across life, from the relief that we experience from the guilt and shame of sin, to the promises of redemption in the future, to God helping us orient through matters of suffering in the present. There is all kinds of therapeutic comfort, okay? But the gospel doesn't begin and end there. All right, it's not the only thing that we have to say. And so uh, what can happen is that there can be an emphasis on self-fulfillment and happiness that occupies the pulpit in a manner that begins to soften the edges of the gospel, okay? What you'll find when you look out kind of in the broader world is notions of sin being uh, reduced down, an emphasis on self-fulfillment, Jesus being the one who helps actualize that self-fulfillment, And you have kind of um, a series of actors who are going to be more extreme, who are easy to pick on, and then you have kind of this uh, filtering process back. And so I won't won't give you the names because you can put it together for yourself. Um, And so there's a wide uh, spectrum of degrees on that therapeutic impulse. But we just have to be guarded that, yeah, that happens, and it's going on all around us. Now, the third thing is the, the practical piece. Should scriptural teaching be practical? Yes. (laughs) It should land in your life, okay? It should make sense of the world around you. It should help you orient to that world. But as one of my friends told me, he said, I just couldn't take another sermon about how to balance my bank account, okay? That's a real thing, all right? Um, But that practicality, that practical side Uh, has been adopted as an imminent concern where we're going to help people and we're going to do so and we're going to define what it means to help people in a way that comes from outside of the scriptures. We're just going to go to cultural concerns that they have. And so that too uh, can be a way in which we get off. And so emphasizing the political, emphasizing the therapeutic, emphasizing the practical, and doing so in ways that are coming from outside the scriptures is a way that the evangelical church has been weakened by all this with an imminent concern, okay? Because the bottom line is, God, uh, guys, is that we're dealing with God, and that has massive implications for the world in which you live, but the primary thing that we're dealing with is God, 
okay? And he does therapeutic things for us. He does practical things for us. Uh, but it's also that we can't, um, we can't grow tired of real engagement with him and transcendent truths that are sometimes hard to get our minds around. We can't become bored and think that the Trinity is not important. We can't become bored and think that, you know, the cross is just an event in history and yeah, that's nice. We can't become bored and thinking about creation and all of its implications for human sexuality and what it means to be a flourishing human being. But that is often what happens kind of in a dumbing down to an imminent concern. All right, so there's an affinity for more imminent concern. Now, third, there's a susceptibility to a susceptibility to celebrity. There it is. All right. Now we live in a quickly, I mean, a vastly changing world. Violent sometimes uh, the shifts can feel, and what that's created is a particular uncertainty, where we're trying to cling to things that help us feel more certain. One of the things that helps people feel more certain in an uncertain time is a strong and charismatic spiritual leader. Okay, guys, this is no um, necessarily new phenomena. This has existed in the church for hundreds of years where you have particularly charismatically gifted leaders who attract large crowds, okay? But in the last 25 years, you have a pro proliferation of that, okay? The average size church 50 years ago was still under 100 people. Today, that has greatly changed with the growth of the suburban megachurch, okay? Everything has been redefined, and you have extremely capable and gifted people at the front, and we love to cheer on our celebrities because they give us some sense of security and certainty. Um, there's an interesting podcast that's been released by Christianity Today um, that some of you may find value in listening to. You need to exercise some qualifications and listen to the qualifications that they give you at the beginning of that podcast. But it's a pod podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Okay? It's telling a modern story of a church that started in the early 2000s, had tremendous success, baptized thousands of people, saw people convert and experience community in marvelous ways, and yet fell apart almost overnight with the loss of its founding pastor, okay? And it's not just one story. And the author of the podcast recognizes that as well because he knows he's telling a broader story, scandal after scandal in the evangelical community in which we've watched celebrities who have tremendous platforms and tremendous gifts, tremendous charisma, but that charisma was not matched by a character, okay? And it's been extremely destructive, all right? Despite also some good things happening. And so we just have to recognize that we've been predisposed in our culture through kind of the feelings of uncertainty and all the change and all the individualism and the way that's impacted us where we are predisposed towards liking celebrity and attaching to it. Now, finally, there's also a predisposition towards entertainment. This is just part of the culture we live in. It's the Disneyfication of the world, okay? That's the world we live in where it is a consumer society. And so what we are not surprised to see is that the evangelical church oftentimes tries to mimic that. 
Now, this came particularly, uh, I became particularly aware of this several years ago. I was in a conversation with a friend who was also a pastor, and he asked me what we were doing in terms of the renovation that was happening at the church. And I said, well, our, our sanctuary is actually really dark, and, um, you know, it's just kind of dingy, and so we want to open it up. We want it to be uh, simple, and we want it to communicate our theological values where pulpit's on display, and so's the baptismal, and so's the Lord's table, because those are the three things we believe in as the way God ministers to us, and we're going to put a big window where you can see God's creation and beauty through it. And he said, you know, we just renovated our sanctuary, and we closed all the windows and blacked out the stage and put in a lot of lights and different things. And I was like, you couldn't get two more different <laughs> approaches right there. And, um, but that somewhat does tell the story of emphasis and direction, okay? Um, because the evangelical church has largely taken its cues from the comedy club and also from the concert venue to then define how they're going to present themselves on Sundays. Guys, there are more faithful ways to do that and less faithful ways. I'm not saying that architecture will save you, but there are things that are communicated through that architecture and through those choices, okay? And, uh, and so it's important just to be aware of that. And that type of venue and that type of approach tends to be more disposed to an entertainment where there are other assumptions at work as well. And so we just want to be very careful about those things. But when you take all of that expressive individualist, when it meets kind of hyper-capitalistic consumer economy, you find a very quickly changing and morphing evangelical church where those four types of things are on display. Now, so that leads to the question is what does a mature Christian response involve? All right, and so we're gonna talk about four resources. Again, this is just beginning to approach the issue. But the first resource that we have at hand in order to help us navigate that moment is our doctrine of human sinfulness. When you are being encouraged to define your own personal happiness by your psychological state and by your psychological definitions, um, we need to be very aware that that's appealing to a massive problem inside of us. It's called our sinful, broken situation. <laughs> that we are being allowed to become the authority in our lives. And so we know that that's not right, as those who've been taught about human sinfulness and all of our proclivities and all of our brokenness and all of our will. But we have to constantly be reminded that the fulfillment of the self, the happiness of our internal happiness, um, using that gauge to define human success, that that's a sub-biblical definition, okay? And that we need to constantly be suspicious of ourselves because we still deal with all of that human brokenness and all of that human sin. So we're not free to simply uh, critique this and act as if we've overcome it. We have to realize that we are susceptible to it and we must work to be self-conscious and aware of how it impacts us, Okay. So this, isn't just, uh, this is just an exercise in understanding our sinful corruption. Now, the gospel teaches us that there's more to life than our self-fulfillment. And the modern quest for self-fulfillment and personal happiness, that this is ultimately a fool's errand, okay? And we have to constantly remind ourselves and remind one another of that fool's errand. 
but that's an empty quest. Our one good, our one happiness is found in God, and it is God alone who can free us from the chains of self-love. All the expressive individualist stuff is telling you to love yourself and to listen to yourself. You be you, you be true to yourself. It's simply telling you to exalt yourself. The Christian gospel is pushing you exactly in the opposite direction. To say, no, you will be your most authentic self when you're freed from yourself by God. Okay? That's a massive resource for us in terms of looking to God and asking him to help us reorient. Okay? Because huge cultural forces are coming in from you from every direction. From the radio, from the television, from the internet. From every direction telling you a different story. And so we must consciously push back. All right? That's the first resource you have. Now, the second resource that we have is our understanding of the church. When we discuss the church and when we discuss the, uh, the task of theology, um, in our tradition, we're never doing that in isolation, okay? We're not doing it as if the church was just created yesterday, okay? We don't act like we're something new. We don't act like we're the gift to God's world. One of the uh, pastors of a large evangelical church that was quoted in the Mars Hill podcast was exhorting the congregation to uh, a certain campaign that the church was promoting. And then he said this. He said, we have to do this because blank, he put the church's name in, is the hope of the world. Woo. You had to, I had to listen to it two or three times. Did he actually say that? He did. Blank is the hope of the world. And then as you listen to the pastor's self-description of the church and its narrative, you would have thought that the day of Pentecost happened in, 19, in the late 1970s when this church was started. But that's the way the entire story was being fashioned. But one of the benefits that we have is uh, of being much more humble and modest and being able to see our place as an individual church inside of a much larger story that's also connected to that story. We're not just viewing ourselves as drop down in history and that we have God's answer to everything, but we're connected to this tradition that helps us orient because one of the things that we deeply need right now is roots, okay? Where everything is not up for grabs. And you guys know me well enough to know my love for history and my willingness to read uh, old dead guys, long since gone, in order to help me understand the present moment. Because in the present moment, you're only gonna hear certain things that are valued. And there's nothing like a dead person who lived in a different cultural context to teach you something that you don't see. Because one of the things I know about myself is I am limited and I'm not gonna see everything. But having a voice come from the outside, having a voice come from tradition and history to remind you of things that you are not disposed to see is tremendously helpful. And it's one of the stronger arguments for staying inside of denominational traditions, having historical confessions. And we don't expect you all to memorize those and know those, but one of the most helpful things for you is to know that it exists and that what you're being taught and what you're being encouraged in is not just simply that's been manufactured by the guy up front. If I am manufacturing things for you up front and not teaching the historic faith that's grounded in scriptures, that runs back through the history of the church, that uh, brings the church alive in the Reformation, that's continued to grow and spread throughout the world, 
then something is deeply wrong. If there's something innovative and novel going on, then I'm not doing my job, okay? Um, and actually the reformers themselves said that. They said, we're not doing anything new, we're just doing what the church fathers said we should be doing. All right, and so that's our goal, and we build on that history, and we use that history consciously. We give a vote to the dead, and that gives us roots and some stability, all right? Frees us from the, uh, from the present moment. Now, third, we also try to work with the communal ethos, okay? This has been the strength of the traditional church. One of the most uh, fascinating things that you'll learn about in, in church history is the size of congregations. That even when America was far more substantially Christian, it didn't mean that church buildings were bigger. They were just everywhere. <laughs> when I was living in Washington, D.C., I remember how many empty church buildings there were. As I walked around the older parts of town, they were everywhere. and They're being turned into condominiums and apartments now and art museums and different things. But you marvel because all of these churches were small. They had space for about 100 people because that's how the church was defined, okay? Traditionally, it was a body of people that lived in relationship with one another and sought to encourage one another in the things of God. And so it's important for us to remember that communal ethos and to say, yes, we're not just individuals who happen to show up in the same place, excuse me, on Sunday. No, we are a community who shares a common life together, that interacts with God together, and seeks to bear one another's burdens. Those are two different things, okay? And community is not just defined as friendship. A church is a place, of course, where friendship is going to happen, and you can't be equally friends with everybody. Got to be realistic about that. But it does mean that when you're part of a church, that you have a common union, a community, common union, with everyone around you who shares that faith, and you have common obligations to one another. This is what Paul is speaking about in Romans 12, okay? And so we want to have that communal ethos and always be working on it, knowing that all the individualism and all the definitions of the psychologized self push against that, okay? They push us into our own corners, and we want to be working against that. So know that biblical resource of being called together to a common life. Now, resource number four, um, and this will probably not land with you at all. But it is our philosophy of church governance. And you say, what does that have to do with anything? It has to do with a lot when it comes down to this issue of celebrity. Okay? As a Presbyterian pastor... I officiated a funeral uh, several years ago. It was uh, from someone who died here, it was our friend Tom Damish, and the funeral was held in, in Washington, D.C., in Arlington Cemetery. And so after the funeral, uh, one of the people who had attended came up and said, you're a Presbyterian, aren't you? I said, I am. <laughs> he said, I knew it. And, uh, and so I just started laughing. He says, you guys have a certain brand. And, uh, and I've heard that comment enough, you know, I know it comes from clothing and culture and different things, different emphasis, things that I taught about, okay? Um, and, uh, and not all of that uh, everybody needs to inhabit. But um, there were also things in what uh, was being said that were unspoken, okay? Um, and it's some of the benefits of being part of denominational life and being grounded and rooted. Um, Many of the things that have happened with church celebrity in our culture have been extremely gifted young men with tons of charisma, okay? And I want you to hear me say that, extremely gifted, 
capable people, okay, who go out and sometimes do things that are extremely sacrificial, and yet then it implodes because their character doesn't catch up with their charisma, okay? And the Bible has a good deal to say about young men not being promoted too quickly, okay? Um, has a lot to say about that. And the reason is because there were dangers. And those dangers lived in Paul's day as well. If you really want to understand the American church, I think you can just read the, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, okay? Super gifted people who were rising in the church who had no real business in leadership and, and were distorting the gospel. And so one of the things about our church governance and the way that works is it tends to discipline the cowboy out of young men, okay? Young men are not allowed to be exalted for the most part too quickly, okay? Sometimes things happen and we can't control every circumstance, but it tends to work back against that. It tends to take you through a long, slow, arduous process that beats it out of you, <laughs> slowly, seeking your spiritual maturity, seeking for you to be wise, okay? It then provides a system of governance where there's not one person in charge. There's a I can't say all these words, plurality of leadership, okay? And so that provides protection. It provides accountability to the historical standards. It provides us bodies outside of this church that then have authority over this church, okay? It's all of that church governance that in the kind of uh, context we're in where everything is up for grabs, where pastors oftentimes have far more authority than, than they have any business, possessing, okay? That church governance is a gift, okay? So we have this book called the Book of Church Order. How many of you have read it? Good. You don't want to, okay? It's awful, but it's a gift, okay? Um, you don't need to have read it. What you need to know is that it exists, okay? And what it is it's an elaborate commentary on 1 Corinthians 14.40, which is where Paul says to the Corinthian church, everything needs to be done in good order, okay? And so then what Presbyterians did is they began to have bad experiences in church life and began to put down rules that would help things to be done in good order. Let me give you a for instance, okay? There were congregational meetings being called, Okay? And congregational meetings are where we vote on certain things that can have significant impact on the church's life. Now, as Presbyterians, we don't vote very often, okay? Um, but when you do, it really means something, okay? It's showing up vote, all right? Um, and so what was happening is congregational meetings were being called, and then on the floor of the meeting, the agenda was then set. And so nobody knew the agenda before. People didn't show up. And then the next week, they find out the church has completely changed, I didn't know we were voting on that. Yeah, well, the church voted. It's gone. Okay? And so what happened is they said, ah, we need a rule. That anything that's going to be voted on has to be announced a month beforehand. <laughs> and that's the only thing that can be voted on. Okay? So you see the way the book of church order works? Who's it designed to protect? The church. It's designed to protect you. Okay? It's designed to protect you from me. It's designed to protect me from you, <laughs> all right? It's designed that we live in common love and unity with one another in respect. It's designed to protect you from the session. It's designed to protect the session from you. It's designed to allow flourishing and harmony, okay? 
it's extremely helpful. And no one really likes to talk about governance, I know, and this is not like one of those imminent concerns that you just go, ooh, I feel great, having heard Chuck talk about that, okay? But it's extremely significant in the middle of a violently changing culture to know that there is a structure that helps situate the pastor and his authority, the session and their authority, and the church and their position and authority, okay? And to know how that works and to know how that organization exists to allow one thing to dominate. And it's not so that we can be all uptight and put together. It's to allow love to flourish, okay? That's ultimately what the Book of Church Order and organization is about. It's about allowing unity and love to flourish amongst a people where we can say, hey, we agree to live by this set of rules and order that allows our life to then happen in predictable ways. And nothing crazy is going on, okay? Uh, and so that's one of the gifts to us in the middle of all this. So guys, that's a beginning of just saying those are some resources that help us navigate the current cultural moment um, where the evangelical church is actively being redefined by cultural forces, okay? And we have to have resources that help us press back, all right? So we'll pause there. Next week, we pick up the topic of politics, but let me pray for us, and I went late again, and here come the children. All right, let's pray. Father, help us as we talk about these things. May we do so well. Guide us into your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.